0: This is an RNZ podcast. Kia ora and welcome to the best of First Up for Wednesday the 16th of June, called Katrina Batana ho. In today's pod, an investigation is launched into whether mysterious plastic beads scattered across a coromandel beach could be from the wreck of the Rena, which sank almost 10 years ago. A New Zealand-made business providing comfort for those challenged by sensory processing differences. And increasing numbers of Kiwis are viewing China as a threat rather than as a friend. But first... New research indicates that embarking on a doctoral degree in New Zealand doesn't necessarily mean students will suffer a nervous breakdown. Unlike in comparable countries where PhD students' mental health tends to plummet, down here they seem to fare quite a bit better. As Carmina Blewett reports, establishing good personal and professional relationships during doctorate studies appears to make the difference.
1: So graduate student mental health is a concern both in New Zealand uh, and around the world. So it was, I guess, important to investigate whether starting graduate study leads to um, reductions in mental health for graduate students in New
2: Zealand. That's Dr Damien Scythe explaining why he thought it was important to find out how students' mental health is affected when they take on the mammoth task of doing a PhD. Using data from eight New Zealand universities, he and seven other academics assessed the mental well-being of 269 students who went on to do a PhD, compared with 4,000 who did not. Dr Skaff says while international reports indicate a huge decline in mental health for those in pursuit of a doctorate, his study tells a different story for students in New Zealand.
1: So the results effectively show that those who enter the workforce have a slight bump in increase in mental health um, and those who enter graduate study basically don't change in their mental health. Um, And so that's an interesting finding because based on international literature we would have predicted that graduate study would result in a marked decrease in mental health.
2: Denver Brito is approaching the end of his biomedical science doctorate and says while earlier studies came with some stress, his mental health has remained stable during his PhD.
1: Prior to going to my PhD, um, my mental health was fairly good and I think About three or four years before starting, I did have some anxiety issues for a few months and that was just after finishing my bachelor's degree and starting postgraduate study. But after those few months, I um, got over those issues and then for the next year doing my master's and the year after my master's, it was fine. So going to my PhD, um, I didn't, I'd assume that um, since everything was fine during my master's, it would continue to be that way.
2: Joseph Chen, who's more than two years into investigating depression through neuroimaging, found it difficult balancing mental well-being with his university commitments during prior study. But he says undertaking a PhD has not made things worse. He says his past experience has helped him to keep things in check.
1: So before I started my doctoral study... Um, there there were aspects in which uh, it was challenging already so with the doctoral journey I mean it, there are certainly times when it can be quite stressful just because it's stressful doesn't, doesn't mean it diminished my mental health I suppose it's my ability to deal with the stress
2: Mr Chen says having a supportive community around him has been valuable, and urges PhD candidates to seek the same by establishing good personal and professional relationships.
1: You have to maintain your ability to connect with the people who you love and who love you, and and also having a lot of friends at university, being able to reach out to your peers around you. more often than not, they're going to similar um, similar things, similar pressures. Uh, other things that helped was a good supervisor relationship, um, having a good faculty support um, and and knowing that uh, your supervisor cares about you.
2: Dr Skyfe says the study shows New Zealand's doctorate regime in a positive light.
1: New Zealand programs differ uh, in a number of ways. So one thing is that we have really high completion rates, so, most of the students that start their PhD in New Zealand finish and they finish within a reasonable time frame. So, that gives us um, an advantage um, over um, other countries. The other one is that our graduate programs are shorter than programs in places like the US. And so, our program is three years, whereas there is five years, and basically places less strain on candidates. So that's good news, I guess, regarding our graduate programs in New Zealand.
3: Dr
2: Skif considers the findings a win and hopes it will encourage students, who might feel they
0: don't have what it takes to do a PhD, to take the plunge. Kamina Blewett reporting. Our New Zealand-made business this week features Sensory Haven for Kids, whose products aim to provide comfort and security for children and adults who are challenged by sensory processing differences. From fidget tools to sensory swings, they have it all. Our reporter Ella Stewart spoke with owners Linnea Bergman and Angela Howlett who are passionate about helping the community through their business.
4: Our business, we started it in February 2020 and it's called Sensory Haven for Kids. And the reason that we both started it is where our backgrounds are in social work, special needs and early childhood. There were lots of kids in schools that were having issues. Teachers were struggling with behaviour and some of it was kids with sensory processing difficulties. And there was so little out there, teachers didn't know about it and we saw the need, so that's what started us off.
3: And tell me about some of the products you guys sell. We sell weighted blankets. We sell sensory
4: compression sheets, Um, we sell weighted animals, what else do we sell? Um, We sell fidget bags for children and uh, lots and lots of fidget things that they can use in the classroom and at home.
3: That sounds like quite a wide range of products and how do you source some of these products?
4: When we decided to do this we had a look to see what was out there and everything that we saw was just super expensive. So we had a look around and we contacted someone in China and we found out how to import some products. And the ones that we couldn't import, we organised to be Best made stuff. here. So our compression sheets we we get made locally here. We've got competitors, but our competitors really highly priced. So we are the cheapest because we want we want families that need this stuff to be able to access it. And we've got a promise to our clients that if they can find anything um, exactly the same from a New Zealand retailer, then we will undercut them by 10%.
3: So these products are used for um, you know, specific needs. Tell me, why are they useful and how do they make people that use them feel?
4: So they're helpful for all sorts of people, but people that have sensory processing disorder... Their brains misinterpret sensory information like touch and sound and movement. So a lot of our products can help them with that. Like our weighted pets, they're really tactile. They can be used, you know, the kids can feel the beads and the paws and the fur, and they can use them to self-regulate. And our sheets, so they work like a tube over the bed, so they're like a compression hug for the children so that they feel safe and secure. Um, It can stop children from falling out of bed, and they've been very popular.
3: When you have these um, sensory socks and you can put it on and it's a big tube, um, tell me about that. So those are great. So they're
4: for children that, that like to go into a quiet space. They can just hop into them, they can dome them up and they can just sit there quietly and just self-regulate again. They can have their head out. They can stretch. It's made out of a lycra, so they can do lots of things. They can roll. They can lie on the couch. They can, it's really, really good for children who crave that.
3: So there's a real market for these kind of products?
4: Yeah, there there's a real market. There's a, yeah, so we're, we're helping and, um, educate schools as well and teachers. So we also go into schools and show them what we've got and how it can help. And we provide advice for people on our website. We've also got the sensory swings, which has been very, very popular. So you can suspend them from the ceiling. They can be inside or out. And these are great for children because it's got a rhythmic swing motion and they stimulate children's sense of balance and encourage development. And they can often just go in there quietly, read a book, And yeah, calm down.
3: What has the reaction been like?
4: From our customers, we've had really positive reaction from customers we've got reviews. They're just sending in and saying that these products have helped their kids. Because these kids at school, they struggle with social, emotional and educational problems. They can have difficulty making friends or some of the kids are labelled as clumsy or disruptive or out of control. And some of the underlying stuff with these kids, can be anxiety or depression. Parents sometimes get blamed for these children's behaviour, but it's behaviour that they can't help; they have no control over because they've got this disorder that's hidden. Just having somebody validate these kids and parents too is, is huge for these families. So you know, we, we we get families touching base with us and just thanking us for that. We do regularly do random acts of kindness. So we'll give away a product to a family. We've provided products for schools for them to trial and see if it works for their children. So that's been great. We've really enjoyed doing that. Yeah, so if anybody's wanting us to do the same sort of thing, like provide advice for schools or whatever, just get in touch with us. And we're learning, learning more and more as we
0: go. That was Sensory Haven for Kids owners, Linnea Bergman and Angela Howlett. Increasing numbers of New Zealanders are viewing China as a threat rather than a friend for the first time. At the same time, Kiwis are also feeling closer to many Asian nations than before and are showing interest to learn more about them. That's among the findings of the Asia New Zealand Foundation's annual survey, New Zealanders' Perceptions of Asia and Asian Peoples 2020, which has been running for more than 20 years. Jason Young, who's the director at the New Zealand Contemporary China Research Centre at Victoria University, told our reporter Chen Liu the growing threat perception is concerning.
5: One of the key findings was that New Zealanders are more interested and more knowledgeable about Asia. But in regards to China, the number of people who thought that China was friendly towards New Zealand has decreased significantly significantly while the number of people who view China as a threat to New Zealand has increased significantly. And I think that reflects a number of issues in the bilateral relationship and a number of issues that that have been going on with China that have been well reported on in media and in academia.
3: Mm, uh, What are those issues, do you think?
5: So, So I think last year, when the survey was done, I think the key issues that were concerning For for a lot of people that I've talked to were obviously the question around Hong Kong and the imposition of the national security law and the steady move away from liberal democratic institutions for the people within Hong Kong. And then the second big issue was the question of how Uyghur people are being treated in Xinjiang. Some of the concerning reports about camps there, re-education camps as they call them, and some of the civic liberties being taken away from those people. Another issue was obviously the South China Sea and the questions around the militarization of the South China Sea and a more aggressive posture from China with its claims in the South China Sea. And then I think the fourth big issue was the deterioration of relations between China and the United States and the really strong war of words that's been going on there, which shows a, a more aggressive side to Chinese diplomacy and foreign affairs. A fifth big issue would be China's relationship with Australia, where some of the more punitive actions that China has taken over their disagreements in the political space would have shocked a number of New Zealanders, including sort of the tariffs, but also some of the really strong commentary and Daolijin, the... Uh, foreign affairs spokesperson sharing some very questionable images about Australian soldiers in Afghanistan. And then I think another issue is, of course, the the COVID issue. And there was a lot of attention and news about how China handled the COVID pandemic, particularly in the early days when it's really shut down information sharing and was quite secretive about some of the challenges of the COVID pandemic.
3: As you mentioned earlier, lots of people are showing more interest and say they have more knowledge about Asia than before. What Mm -hmm. is your take on that? Is it a positive trend?
5: I think that's a very positive trend and I would be very surprised if people didn't know more about Asia considering the growing importance and significance of Asia for world affairs and New Zealand affairs more generally. But also I think it reflects some of the efforts that have been going into changing what we teach and how we talk and the types of stories that we tell ourselves within uh, the the media and in literature. And also reflects the changing demography of the New Zealand population.
3: Is there anything that concerns you out from this report?
5: So I think the thing that concerns me would be the significant shift in how New Zealanders feel about China and the the growth in the threat perception and the decrease in the friendliness towards China. And I think that if that, that trend continues, then that would likely have a detrimental impact on The bilateral relationship and New Zealand's ability to achieve security and prosperity in the region. So I think a lot more work needs to be done in terms of finding out why this shift has occurred and trying to address some of those issues.
0: That's Jason Young from Victoria University of Wellington. An investigation has been launched into whether mysterious plastic beads that have appeared scattered across Tairua Beach in Coromandel could be from the wreck of the Rena, which sank almost 10 years ago. It follows a big community effort over the weekend to clean up the small plastic balls, which have also been found in the stomach of fish caught in the area. If they're found to have come from the Rena, it'll unlock funds set aside to deal with the disaster, and a clean-up will need to be organised by the managers of the wreck. But as Alice Stewart reports it's not clear whether pockets of rena debris remain buried beneath the sand at risk of being dislodged in future storms.
3: In October 2011, the MV rena ran aground on the Astrolab Reef around 12 nautical miles off Tauranga, resulting in the worst maritime environmental disaster in New Zealand's history. As well as thousands of tonnes of oil, dozens of containers were washed overboard and some of their contents spilled into the Bay of Plenty. Almost all of the debris was accounted for in the massive clean-up operation, but some were lost to sea. Tairua resident, Helen Stead believes the thousands of plastic beads she found as she walked along the Coromandel Beach last week are some of that unaccounted-for rubbish, which has found its way to the shore after 10 years. And I always pick up
6: rubbish, but this particular day there was massive and those tiny little wee beads that would be gosh maybe the size of a peppercorn the closer to the north end I got the more of those wee beads we were seeing and so my partner and I were picking up handfuls of rubbish and then yeah I realized I was down on my hands and knees picking up these beads and it was sort of futile and quite upsetting and I just thought man I'm
3: not having any impact just the two of us, we're not having any impact whatsoever on this. In the years following the Rena disaster, coastlines were plagued by similar plastic beads. And Helinor and other locals believe these are the same ones. One of the locals told me a fish
6: that he'd caught recently and he'd sliced open a fist as he was filleting the fish, and within the fist of these beads. And I guess it makes the sorts of things that we see on films like Sea spiracy much more relevant because it's right there in front of us. We can't avoid it.
3: Unable to clear all of the beats herself, Helenor posted on a local community Facebook page to get some reinforcements. Lo and behold, on Sunday, around 70 volunteers armed with shovels, bags and sieves showed up. 11am I went down, I think I got there about five past and there already
6: would have been about 20 to 30 people and I'd say at the peak we had about 70 plus people from the community, mostly families with young kids. I'd say it would have been about 50-50 adults and kids. Yeah, and everyone was just down on their hands and knees and with colanders and sieves and buckets and, yeah, just picking up as much of these beads as we possibly could. But it was, as I say, it was completely overwhelming. We had to leave because of the wind and the cold after an hour and a half. And we could have spent all day... Down there, and I don't know that it would have made a visible difference.
3: And now she says other people have reached out, saying the plastic beads, which don't pose a risk to the public or wildlife, have been found on other beaches up and down the coast. Picadillo Bay, which is further up the coast, or Tata Bay, which is the next one round again. Yeah, apparently it goes right up the Coromandel. Des Watson has been travelling to different beaches around New Zealand for the past two years, collecting as much rubbish as he can. He's spent the past three weeks on Waihi Beach, and says the recent King Tide washed out a lot of sand dunes and revealed rubbish and debris beneath.
7: Over the course of 10, 15 years, those dunes have been building up, and whatever rubbish has been getting captured in those dunes, that all got washed out too, so... Literally, been finding millions of the little plastic pellets along the beach, and they've been out in the water or in the dunes for the last 10 years. Apparently they come from the rena oil
3: spill. Des has visited around 500 beaches in the last two years and says he has seen these plastic pellets throughout New Zealand. But he says they can't all be attributed to the MV rena disaster.
7: There's a lot going into the waterway around Wellington so you obviously got bigger centres that are going to have plastic factories. I think Wellington's got a plastic factory there. Auckland's probably got a couple of plastic factories. And then using these plastic pellets and whether they're spilling them in the yard and they're going down the stormwater drains or whether the transport companies are sticking their forklift forks through the bags when they're offloading them and puncturing holes in the bags and that are spilling out everywhere. They could be spilt out on the truck while they're offloading it and all these plastic pellets are falling on the ground. In the case of Thing, the millions of pellets out on Waihi Beach and that, I'd say they're definitely from the Rena oil spill.
3: For Coast Guard Operations Manager Graham Caddy says a large storm a couple of weeks ago caused big shifts to the sands on the seabed.
1: huge amount of sand was shifted within the Taurua harbour, so the Taurua bar. Has been affected, and a great deal of the river mouth and the in Tyro and Pawanui sides, um, the contours of the harbour floor itself have been shifted with the amount of sand. So it's a huge upheaval with the basis of the Tyro harbour. So it's likely that material that's been there for some time has been disturbed by this storm. It could include a lot of things. That material may have been in the harbour or in the river mouth there for some time. It's just that the force of this particular storm and the amount of sand that's been shifted has brought it to the surface.
3: The Astrolab Community Trust was set up to monitor, manage and mitigate any further issues relating to the wreck. The trust, which is funded by RENA's insurer, would not be interviewed, but says in a statement that big storms will continue to uncover any remaining beads from the RENA. It says there were significant swells two weeks ago. The Astrolab Community Trust is the holder of the consent and has responsibility for responding to any debris sighting, including beads. The Trust has someone travelling to Tairua to meet with the local team leader to help administer any further clean-up required this week. Members of the public can call the Bay of Plenty Regional Council Pollution Hotline to report sightings of debris and beads. The number is 0800 884 883. The Bay of Plenty Regional Council will then coordinate with the Trust to activate the Shoreline Debris Management Response Plan. A statement from Maritime New Zealand says its understanding is that all cargo from the Rena was removed from the wreckage prior to the ship being sunk as a diving wreck. It's not aware of any recent reports from other vessels which lost cargo consistent with the plastic beads. Maritime New Zealand says regional councils will continue to undertake investigations into items which wash up on the shore.
0: Ella Stewart with that report. Thanks for listening to the best of First Up, Matewa.